0: Well good morning men, it's it's a real pleasure to be here, to be with you, and uh, Frank, I'm kind of excited about that, I've been thinking about it since they've invited me to come down. The Lord is moving, and I haven't quite figured out exactly what he's doing, but I sense he's doing something, and I sense this is part of that. Um, A little administrative, if you'll help me. I have a good friend who's challenged me, and so I've, I've accepted the challenge. And around there should be a blue card and a white card. And so what I'm going to challenge you and ask you to help me with is the blue card I'd like you to keep. But on that blue card, hopefully, during this message, there'll be one or two things that will stimulate your thinking. Something you'll want to ponder, you'll want to reflect on, you'll want to kind of noodle on going forward. I want you to write it down. Or maybe there's a person that you want to talk to as a result of what I'm going to share with you. or maybe there'll be an idea something the, the blue card is for you to take something out of this message for you in the days and weeks to come okay? The white card is for me. I'm really working hard to make this better. and so if there's any insight, any thoughts, any ideas that you have that would help me, I'd like you to put on a white card and then make sure you give it to me when we're done, okay? Um, I'm going to try to answer this question. It's an age-old question. Why does God allow suffering? But I want to start from a little different vantage point, and to do that, I want to tell you a little bit about my story, and how I got here. Um, My dad went over with a heart attack uh, when I was 17 years old. Uh, Senior in high school, and we were a pretty low-income, low-middle-class family, so college was not an option. And When he died, it really absolutely wasn't an option. So when I graduated from high school in June of 1960, uh, like a lot of young men in that era, I joined the Navy and went in to serve, but I also went in to get access to the GI Bill because that was about the only possibility I knew at that time to have an opportunity to go to college. And uh, so I got shipped off to San Diego going through boot camp out there and uh, in those days, Boot camp was or, uh, chapel was mandatory, if you can imagine that. So every Sunday morning, I form up 3,000, 4,000 recruits and march us over this big auditorium. And I could not have said it then the way I can say it now, but all the chaplains were evangelicals. So every Sunday, I'm hearing the gospel as a march to the auditorium boot recruit there at the training center. And one Sunday, it just clicked. It just made sense. So I got out of the pew, went forward, and that's when my journey of faith began was as an enlisted guy in the boot camp out in San Diego. But something else happened while I was out there. Um, I wound up being the battalion yeoman and I'm sitting at the table just clerking, just typing away. And the battalion commander, chief warrant officer Mansell, W-4, still remember this, looked over at me one day He said, Bishop, he said, I think you ought to go to the Naval Academy. Oh, well, sir, I don't know anything about that. Uh, I'm from Kansas. I know about West Point. (laughs) 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 Because every every boy in Kansas knew about West Point because Eisenhower was a West Pointer and, of course, the war and stuff. So I didn't know anything about the Naval Academy. He said, no, you ought to go to the Naval Academy. Well, long story made short. This (coughs) W-4... mentored me as an E1, the lowest-ranking enlisted guy in the Navy, mentored me through the entire process while I'm going through boot camp to get me to the point where I could get an appointment to the Naval Academy. So from having no opportunity to go to college, meeting the Lord, and then seeing the Lord orchestrate it so that I got to go to one of the finest colleges in this country. Now, man, that's, that's something. And it took me, this is embarrassing, it took me almost 40 years before I began to see the hand of the Lord moving and working in my life, even before I knew him. So I go to the academy, um, four years, it was uh, 1961 to 65. Uh, For those of you that can remember, those were pretty intense days of the Cold War, I was a midshipman when the Cuban Missile Crisis erupted. Uh, we thought we were going to war. Um, it was a tough time. The guys running that place were former World War II guys, Korea guys, had ribbons you know, all up and down here. And they, they knew what kind of officer that place had to produce in case the Cold War became a hot war. So what we went through, <clears throat> Today would be classified as abuse. I mean, no other way to describe it. Push-ups until you drop. Uh, I mean, the things we did were just, I mean, it was abuse. But it helped us. And one of the things that came out of that was an awareness that a good helmsman is never made sailing in smooth waters. And so they made sure we had heavy seas getting through that place because they knew what they were preparing us for. So part of the answer, and I'm going to get to this later later, of why God allows suffering is its preparation. So I want to just hang on to that. Well, after a cruise uh, aboard a destroyer and one aboard a submarine and getting terribly seasick on both of them, I decided the life of the sailor was not the life for me. (laughs) So I opted to take my commission in the Marine Corps, graduated in June of 1965. Uh, landed in Vietnam in uh, April of 1966, spent a year in the war out there, came back, uh, got orders out of Vietnam to, of all places, headquarters Marine Corps in Washington, D.C. Um, I was a combat engineer, and that was a critical specialty at that, in those early stages of the war because most of the casualties were coming from mines and booby traps, that sort of thing, and the engineers, that's our responsibility. So to get yanked out of the war and sent to headquarters for a three-year tour when all my colleagues, all my contemporaries were going to Camp Pendleton, Camp Lejeune, six months and they're right back in country. Again, was the hand of the Lord that I didn't recognize. Because when I got to Washington, I'd been trained by the Officers Christian Fellowship as a young believer that when you get to a new duty station, check in with a local chapel or local church and get engaged. New duty station, get engaged. Well, there are no operating chapels in the Military District of Washington. So I went to a church called Fourth Presbyterian Church. Dick Halverson was the pastor, uh, later became Senate Chaplain. But all the folks that were supporting the Congress in a thing called the National Prayer Breakfast went to Fourth Church. And so I began to meet those folks and got plugged in and ultimately resigned my commission to work full-time with the prayer breakfast and supporting the Congress that's now the 67 years that we've been having the breakfast. This last year was all virtual. Um, We'll know about next year, but it has had a significant impact around the world of gathering people in the name of Jesus around the table to break bread and to experience what it means to fellowship together over a meal. Pretty simple, uh, but it's also pretty profound. Um, I want to um, talk about the lessons s- some of the lessons that I've learned as a result of this experience of the academy, the Marine Corps in Vietnam. The first el- nearly 11 years that I was follower of Jesus were years spent learning about war at the academy, training for war in the Marine Corps going to war in Vietnam. And so those early experiences of faith like our early experiences of life tend to shape us. And so I've been shaped with a perspective of spiritual warfare, of this reality, that there's cosmic conflict out there. And most folks candidly are only tangentially aware, if at all, of this reality of warfare. So here's some of the things that I've learned. First of all, we are born and born again into a world at war. Everything starts with conflict. And I actually believe that all creation took place in the midst of conflict. When God planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, it seems to me that that tree symbolizes the reality of evil, that it existed. In in, other words, if it didn't exist, you couldn't eat off the tree and learn. So I believe evil occurred when Satan erupted in rebellion, which precedes creation, precedes everything that we call creation based on Genesis 1. So I look at creation as an invasion. And the garden is establishing a forward operating base. And God finally saying, I'm gonna undertake my plan now to redeem my kingdom from this rebellion of Lucifer in the heavens. So we're born and born again into a world at war. The other thing I've learned, men, is that we are all wounded men. We start life wounded. We're wounded from the fall for sure. Sadly, we're wounded from the sins and failures of others, and then, of course, we're wounded from our own sin and folly. And uh, what I want to do in this time, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to do something. Some of you probably earned this if you were in the military in assault combat. It's the Purple Heart medal. Um, I got this, um, that's not mine, I didn't, God protected me when I was there, but I got this as a tangible illustration to represent this truth that we're all wounded. We all start life with one of these. So I'm going to pass this around and I'm going to ask you as you grip this, in the moment that you grip this, I'd like you to think through that point of your woundedness. You've heard the term, I'm sure, father wound. Hopefully we get through this we're going to be dealing with a father's scar. There's a big difference between being wounded and being scarred. But I want you to have a a connection with that point of your woundedness. Okay? With me on that? Okay. That purple heart represents another great truth. And that truth is Jesus earned two of those when he was here. The scriptures tell us he was wounded for our transgressions and he was killed in action at the cross. And it also tells me that he wants to do for us what was done for him. And that is to turn those wounds into scars. The beauty of a scar is it never denies the reality of the wound, but it also testifies to the healing And men, that's the challenge that I think these, what we're doing here, is to begin to help one another move from living out of our wounds to begin to live out of our scars. And I honestly believe that when we get to heaven and we're gonna have time with Jesus and one another, we're gonna tell the stories of our scars. And I think the greatest story is when we hear Jesus tell us his story of his scars. The other thing that I've learned, in Jesus, everything is just the opposite of our natural inclinations. We live by dying, we get by giving, we lead by serving, first by being last, exalted by being humbled. Everything is the opposite of our natural inclinations. And I think this process of healing falls in that category. For those of us that have been in the military, you know the phrase uh, "the million-dollar wound." The million-dollar wound's bad enough to get you out of the battle, sent home, <clears throat> not bad enough to disfigure or disable you. That's the million-dollar wound. Well, I believe we all start with the million-dollar wound, but in Jesus, the opposite thing is not to get out of the battle, but to get in the battle. I think the call to follow Jesus is a call to be his ally in this cosmic conflict of the battle between good and evil. John tells us in the first epistle, he says, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's 1 John 3.8. So we decide to follow him, we're deciding to be his allies in this cosmic conflict, and healing comes from getting in the battle, not out of it. Okay? Um, this is where... The idea, I believe, that we get the chance now to have that father wound or the wounds that we've experienced become scars is by getting in the battle. It's opposite our natural inclination. It's opposite the normal way we would think. But that's how I believe Jesus has wired us to get healing is to be his ally in this cosmic battle. Um, How do you do this? What are some specifics that can help you engage in this battle? Well, Paul tells us in Corinthians, he says this, he says, the weapons of our warfare are mighty. They're not carnal. Most men, and I'm going to be blunt here, frankly, do not know what a weapon is in the context of what Paul is saying. When you hear the word weapon, you're probably going to think of a shotgun, a .30-06, a 45. That, that's what you're going to think of. I want to propose a different definition of weapon, different way of looking at a weapon. I want to give you this definition. A weapon is anything you can use that destroys your enemy's ability to wage war against you. So a shotgun pointed at a goose is a shotgun. But when I change the line of sight on that shotgun to somebody's trying to rape my wife, now it becomes a weapon. A weapon is defined, in my opinion, by what it does, not what it is. So, with this, I can take a note, send a note, but in the eye of an attacker, I just turned this into a weapon. Okay? So, a weapon is anything you can use that destroys your enemy's ability to wage war against you. So, take this definition and let's move it into this spiritual battle, this cosmic battle. Conflict, and gentlemen, we have a whole arsenal of weapons to, with which to fight this spiritual battle. I'm only going to give you a few. The first one, and somebody was asking me about this, is forgiveness. Amen. And probably most of you have not heard forgiveness characterized as a weapon, but gentlemen, that's exactly what it is. When we forgive. We destroy Satan's ability to wage war against us through anger, bitterness, revenge, alienation, hostility, tit-for-tat, settle the score, get even. You take the fight to him when you forgive. It is one of our most powerful weapons that we get to deploy. It lets us take the fight to him. Okay, that's forgiveness, number one. Number two is generosity. Generosity destroys Satan's ability to wage war against us through the love of money and the deceitfulness of riches. But generosity does something else. Generosity is more than just your time, talent, and treasures which is what the typical teaching revolves around. Those three things, right? I want to propose to you that there's other things that are incredibly powerful in this battle. For example, we can be generous with our encouragement. And you've probably never thought about that. The word encourage, encouragement means to put heart into that person, to, to put heart into So think for a minute. With this COVID and all the stuff that's going on, how many people do you know out there who need heart, who need hope, who need encouragement? Almost Everyone. Well, let's be generous with our encouragement. Let's think differently about how we relate to the waitress or to the Uber driver or to other people with whom we engage. Let's think of being generous in that way. Not forgetting time, talent, and treasures, but I think the community people today you can give a word of encouragement, at, and you may not even know it, but for that person at that moment, that might be worth more than a big check because of where they are in their journey. So think of generosity as an attitude, as a spirit, more than a percentage or a number or something tied to your checkbook. Okay? Now, may I start with those two? <clears throat> because forgiveness and generosity are two of the four cornerstones of God's love. God's love gives and God's love forgives. So the degree that we're givers and forgivers, we're lovers. If we're not givers and forgivers, then we can't claim the title lover. Okay? So that, the, the, this is critical, guys, <clears throat> because the culture needs both of these. They need generosity and they need forgiveness. Okay? But there's a third gift. Uh, I'm going to give you out of this whole arsenal. And that's the gift of kindness. Now, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about all the people that you know. Look, think through your entire Rolodex. How many of those people would your first word to describe them is they are a kind person? I'm going to guess that the number will be less than the fingers on two hands. For some reason, kindness has just not been taught in the body of Jesus the way it needs to be taught. But it's kindness, men, that Paul tells us that leads us to repentance. You get more done in a relational situation by being kind than confrontational. If I had the power, okay, if, the big if. To work with those 400 or 535 people on Capitol Hill, that's the message I would give them. To the believers on the Democratic side, to the believers on the Republican side, learn how to be kind to the people with whom you work. What, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on, where is kindness? Paul's in, in an encounter with Jesus let mark him on the Damascus Road. It scarred him in a positive way. It left him with two dominant emotions. One was patience and kindness. Love, in 1 Corinthians 13, love is what? Patient and kind. The fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness. In his last letter, Second Timothy, uh, Timothy chapter two, he says, "The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome." But kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Man, kindness is one of the most underutilized weapons that we have in our arsenal. So let me encourage you to think this through. Forgiveness, generosity, and kindness. I think Winter Garden could change the world if you became known as a community of kindness, okay? In Vietnam, I carried an M16 and a 45, and my Marines carried hand grenades. Those are individual weapons. Kindness, generosity, and forgiveness are individual weapons. But we also had a thing that we call crew-served weapons, C-R-E-W. Tanks, artillery, machine guns, mortars, helicopters. It took a team to operate them. And that's the next weapon in our arsenal. It's what we're talking about here. Little band of brothers, a few friends, a covenant relationship. Jesus said, we're two or three get together. I'll be there. There is power, it was said earlier. You cannot cannot process life by yourself and we've got a whole culture built around John Wayne and Frank Sinatra and these you know do it my way and hard rugged individualism that's not the way of Jesus and I want to give you a quote here I got to be a technology guy and that's a challenge This is also a challenge. (laughs) This comes from Richard Lamb's book, um, The Pursuit of God in the Company of Friends. Highly recommend the book. He says this, In fact, even cursory glances through the Gospels confirm that the work Jesus did in the lives of his disciples occurred because the disciples were in relationship, not simply with him, but with one another. That manner of spiritual growth and spiritual depth in the context of community is not accidental. It is part of how people are built. We were created to seek God and we were created to find him with others. Not only does this reflect the strategy of Jesus, but just as crucially, it reflects the design of God. Men, we were not design never intended to navigate life solo just not done in the military every aviator's got a wingman every ranger's got a ranger buddy every seal's got a swim buddy every soldier's got a foxhole buddy every marine's got a fire team we do not send men into battle by themselves it's just not done but we do it in faith we do it in the church all the time We haven't properly taught guys and showed them the the value of having a wingman, having a ranger buddy, having a swim buddy. And that's part of the challenge that I feel that I'm supposed to be doing in this process is encouraging guys like you to rethink your relationships so that you pray and ask God to show you somebody to be a ranger buddy, to be a wingman. You know, the Native Americans had this figured out. You know, the old, remember that? Blood brothers. Well, we have that. We have that in Jesus, but it's his blood. It's a covenant relationship. It's, you do life together, and you do life together for life. I can testify to the, I've got friends in, up in Washington, brothers. We've been together for over 50 years, and the relationships are getting better. More challenging because of age, issues, but we're together. And it's making, made and making all the difference in our lives because of these long-term relationships, trusted relationships that we have. So I wanna challenge you to think through the weapons, forgiveness, generosity, kindness, and then a band of brothers, this covenant relationship. Well, that brings me now to trying to answer the question, why does God allow suffering? I want to set the stage because Every man in this room is dealing at some level with suffering. Am I not correct? There's issues, every one of us. So what I'm trying to give you is a way to walk out here and be able to handle that, be able to take the challenge, be able to grow through it, those kind of things. The question of why it came into your life, why there's suffering out there is a whole other issue. So let me try to address that. Um, It's an age-old question. This question goes back almost to the garden. Okay, so there's nothing new here. Um, but I think from the work that I've done on it, that there's a couple of distinctions. One is the why, and then the, the what caused it. The sources of suffering are almost infinite. But behind that is the why. And I'm not sure, so you, but I, I can just share with you where I am in my pilgrimage uh, of how I've answer, tried to answer this question. Um, the why, I believe, has to start with God's purpose for your life. And so let me just, uh, let's uh, dialogue a little bit here. When, when you hear what's the purpose in life, what are, what would your answer or what answers have you heard would be to that question? What's the purpose in life? love others love God, <coughs> glorify, God. glorify God okay disciples. make disciples win, win souls I mean there's a whole lot of answers to that question right I'd like to propose that the answer to the question of what is the purpose in life should reflect God's purpose for our life so now if you think of it that way, what is God's purpose for your life? What, what is He up to? What's His goal? What's He doing? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Okay, that's one. We're going to run out of time here, so let me shorten this. Let me, let me propose to you that what God is up to, what He's determined to do, is to conform us to the likeness of His Son. He's reforming us into the likeness of His Son. Remember, we were created in whose image? We were created in His image. And sin and all this stuff has damaged that. So His process is to reform us, reconform us to the likeness of His Son. So His goal, His purpose, is to make us like Jesus. So if that's His purpose, then I want my purpose to reflect that. So when people ask me what my purpose in life is, my purpose in life is to grow and to mature and to become like Jesus. That's a process, lifelong process. But that's what I'm trying to do. So now if you take that as a purpose and you take the question, why does God allow suffering? I think it transforms that question. And I I can only find two reasons for why God allows suffering. The first reason is sin. And he uses suffering to get our attention. He lets the pain, the consequences of those decisions hammer us so that we will repent, turn back to him, confess our sin, get back on the narrow road, get back on the straight and narrow, and continue the process of growing in his likeness. Yes, sir? Who hears you? Who helps you? Who heals you? Okay, I like it. That's the little group. That's perfect for them. Um, So that's the first thing. Suffering comes because of consequences to sin. But I think suffering now comes. It doesn't make any difference what the source is. Suffering comes to help us in this maturing process of becoming like Jesus. Remember I said a good helmsman was never made sailing in smooth waters. So where do you learn endurance? Where do you learn long-suffering? Where do you learn humility? Where do you learn these things? You learn them in the crucible of suffering. And in learning that, in the, it's not just being in the suffering, it's a right response. A right response to suffering is what produces maturity. A wrong response to suffering produces immaturity. So we have a choice but the goal, is, purpose is to become like Jesus, then it's easier to understand that God is saying, I want Joe to have more patience. So he puts him into a set of circumstances that demands growth and patience. Or I want Bill to have more compassion. So he puts him in a situation where that compassion, that yieldedness to to pain produces compassion. So I think the the dynamic of suffering is radically transformed when we begin to see it, that it's part of the school of learning of what it means to become like Jesus. And that's what most of us, I think in our deep souls, in our deepest part of our being, that's what we really want. We want to reflect Him. We want to sound like Him. We want to talk like Him. We want to walk like Him. We want to serve like Him. We want to become more and more like him and be more and more identified with him. Um, Some examples to kind of get a feel for this. Uh, And I use four and it's an alliteration. Job, Joseph, Jeremiah, and Jesus. Think about the suffering of those four men. The most known probably is Jesus obviously in the cross, but Joseph being sold into slavery thrown in prison, figure out the sufferings of those four men and then try to match your suffering up against that. And most of us are going to come up short. That, that, that their suffering pretty much beats anything that we've been through. But those four men, every one of them, never saw themselves as victims. They only saw themselves as vessels in the hand of the living God as the living God was working out His purposes through them and through that suffering. We would not be here and we would not have a relationship with the living God if it weren't for the suffering of Jesus and the cross. So suffering has a completely different dynamic when you begin to put it in these contexts. We can embrace it differently, we can uh, yield to it, we can help others in it better, when we really see there's a much bigger purpose and that the golden life is not to escape it the golden life is not to run from it the, the golden life is not to try to buy our way out of it there is a there is something about suffering that is hard to say but at the end of the day it's wonderful there are people who suffered they get beyond the suffering they grow and they look back and they say if i had it to do over again I'd do it exactly the same way. So, um, I wanna give you one other illustration. And I wanna encourage this, uh, this book for you to read it. And I'll go one step further. If you'll give me your business card or contact information, I'll ship a bunch of these down to Dave and he can pass them out maybe at the next meeting. This book is titled, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe and a Great War. This book chronicles how the combat experiences of World War I, shaped the theology and writing of both C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. Most people don't know this, but both of these men were in the trenches of World War I. Lewis's sergeant was killed right in front of him when a mortar shell came in, and Lewis lived his entire life with that shrapnel from that explosion. Uh, Tolkien was in the Battle of Psalms, Uh, 1.2 million casualties. 400,000 killed, 800,000 wounded. I've been around artillery, some of the vets here've been around it. I can't I can't get my head even close to getting around being in a trench and having artillery come in for hours. Hours. Sometimes 24, 36 hours constant shelling. Every once in a while a shell would hit the trench and you had body parts flying by you or it hit a place where you'd buried guys 2 weeks ago and their body parts were going by. The carnage was just incomprehensible you've heard the phrase war is hell right man that's not quite accurate war reveals hell and these men had as clear a revelation of hell this cosmic conflict between good and evil I I believe as it is possible to get war is one of the worst things on this planet when it comes to death and destruction And both of these men made a conscious decision, a calculated decision to tell the truth of what had been revealed to them through story rather than through historical narrative. We would not have the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia if it were not for the trenches of World War I. And when you read those books, you will see woven through those books their wartime experiences coming out in how they told those stories. Okay, So this idea for me to give to you is for them, their wartime experiences, as horrible as they were, became their preparation for their greatness that came later. Lewis did not come to faith until 1931, but the war impacted that that journey. Tolkien didn't finish the Lord of the Rings until the early 50s. But the war was woven throughout the whole thing. So this has become the only source of hope that I know how to give guys who, as we talked earlier, the wounds, the horrible things that I hear from time to time that men have gone through their private war, their private hell, their private battles, particularly when they were children. The only source of hope I know how to give those guys is to frame that now in the context of the mystery of grace. Because in the mystery of grace, whatever wounding you've had, whatever you've been through in the mystery of grace can become your preparation for your greatness that's to come. So I want to encourage you to make sure I get your contact information. I'll send you a copy of this book and encourage you to continue your journey towards Jesus and becoming like him. Dave, I'm going to turn it over to you. I don't know how much time we've got in Q&A or whatever.